the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast YouTube channel. I'm Heather Darcy, author of Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the King's Beloved Sister, and now the host of Hands on History. Today, I'm being helped out by one of my parrots, so I apologize for any extra squeakiness. And I'm very excited to welcome an art historian named Melanie V. Taylor. How are you today? Hi, thanks, Heather. I'm great. How are you? Doing well. <laughs> I'm well. <laughs> I'm really excited to have you today. Can you tell us what drew you to art history? Um, well, as a child, I'm, I won a scholarship to Slade, but wasn't allowed to take it, but I've drawn all my life. Um, but when I'm sort of oh, heading towards 50, I decided that really I needed to uh, decide on a second career. So I went away and I did a, um, a degree in the history of art, architecture and design at Kingston University. And then realized having been a dedicated modernist and totally rejecting anything that came before the 18th century, <laughs> I realized that actually art, in the form of architecture and painting and altarpieces and portraits was actually uh, the way that people recorded their life. And when I say people, it's rich people. Sure. <laughs> it, it, uh, the poor just had to rely on their memories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I went away and did a master's degree at the University of Kent and uh, in medieval and early modern history. And that, apart from various other things, gave me the skills to be able to read the documents and therefore I could go back into the accounts, I could look at the letters, I could look at all sorts of things, um, the books of the time. Um, and so combining both art history skills and the skills as, of an historian, it gives you a really broad uh, view on what's out there. Plus the fact I seem to have one of those brains which sees things which other people don't. Well, that sounds like a good skill to have for an art historian. Yeah, um, and also um, a private investigator. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so could you tell us how an art historian approaches an image from the early modern period, which to, in common parlance is the Renaissance or Tudor period? Uh, well, maybe we should look at a case study of a painting that I was actually asked to investigate. It's in a private collection. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so I'll share my screen. Um, hopefully this will work. Share. And maybe there we go. So art history is not just looking at pretty pictures. So let's this one. This is a panel painting sometime between 1550 and 1558. It's in a private collection. It's very, very thin. The original um, panel has been sliced, probably because it was suffering from woodworm, and it's been mounted on blockboard, which wasn't invented until the 1920s. So is this, is this, um, so it sounds like things that you're looking at then are the time period and then also how it's mounted gives you some clues? Yeah, and also if you actually look at the painting, I mean, if you look at the horizontal plane in the background up here, mm -hmm. that, I mean, you know, that bit across there, it's all wonky. And this central column is far too fat. Plus this, this space here, pinched, cramped, just looks wrong. 
So it's it is very much a case of something's not quite right. So, so what um, does that tell an art historian then? Look at the science. Okay. So luckily for this one, there is a um, an analysis that was done using infrared reflectography, which allows us to look underneath the top layer. And you can see down the middle that there's a, a line that goes right the way through to the bottom. So is an art historian normally trained in infrared reflectography? No. Okay. No, no, no. It's one of the tools that we'd use. Uh, this is, in fact, a company called Tana, uh, Taja, Stoner and Richardson, who did the work on this. And those yellow light arrows, which are here, that just shows paint loss, by the way. Um, it's, it's, it's a tool which, you know, modern technology has given us something which we can now look at under the surface which shows whether or not a painting is original and one of the things that we look at that is whether or not there's all sorts of changes and if you look at the faces here mm -hmm. there's all sorts of changes the way that the artist has um, raised the face or lowered the face or changed the expression and so that just shows a it's an original piece of work but also it um, might even reveal that it was painted over something else. So it sounds like you're telling me a couple different things. First, there's lots of different disciplines involved in analyzing a piece of art. Yeah. And second, that it's not just looking at the top layer of the image. You have to look at no. all layers of it to really be able to fully interpret what you're seeing. Is that right? No. I mean, one of the things, it becomes very much a co collaboration between various disciplines. You've got the people who do infrared, you've got people who do non-invasive and analysis of pigments. So you've got the scientists, you've got the dendrochronologists, if you've got enough of the wood that you can tell the age of the panel. Um, it's, it's a group thing. I mean, yes, the art historian is the one who's looking at the painting and was sort of say, this is what we need to do. And these are the tools that that you could go, go and have a look at. Also, um, conservation is very, very key too. I mean, this is being cleaned and whoever did that did a brilliant job. It's a fabulously clean painting, but it's not big. And it's the art historian who also takes all the glory. Oh. <laughs> but it's, you know, this is sort of a last thing you it raises questions. I mean, why is, why is there that line down the middle? You know, why is it being changed like that? Which, um, where have I got? Why is it, why is my thing not working? So what I did was, I did, I split it down the middle, I printed it off and split it down the middle and then stuck it on some uh, wallpaper. Uh, rather stuck one side on its wallpaper and then moved the others out with bits of string, blue and yellow, until such time as I could get the perspective to join in the middle and for that uh, horizontal, you know, the horizon to actually make sense. And I realized that there's something missing in the in the middle. So you what have that is. So you have to be pretty creative with solving visual mysteries and as an art historian too. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you, you can look at the symbolism and you can look at it and you, you think, hey, why on earth is that happening? So the horizon is now making a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. 
perspective now, you know, meet in the middle and makes more sense. But then you've got to go digging into archives and original documents in order to identify the individuals portrayed. And I think that this particular painting was, had this panel in the middle removed. Um, to the side, you've got uh, Charles V and you've got his son, at this point, Prince Philip. And oh, yeah. on the other side, you've got all the people who are um, supporting Charles V, who declared in 1549 that Philip was his son and heir. And if you remember our conversations about Ferdinand and how he got really upset about Philip saying that. Just to back up real quick, because I don't think our viewers know who we're talking about. So there's the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, who of course ruled over, was the hereditary Lord of the Netherlands, and his brother was Ferdinand, and Charles' eldest, well, his only son was Philip II of Spain, who famously married Mary Tudor. Mary, Mary Tudor. So it had been promised to Ferdinand, who was king of the Germans slash Romans, which is the same thing, that he would become the next Holy Roman Emperor. And so in the 1550s, I believe it was, there was a bit of a spat between- 1549. 1549, thank you. There was a bit of a spat between Charles V and Ferdinand because Charles V wanted to make his son, Philip, the next Holy Roman Emperor. Ferdinand said no. So instead, Philip became hereditary Lord of the Netherlands and Ferdinand, when his brother Charles died, became the next Holy Roman Emperor. So- Yes. Well, yeah, Philip also then was also going to become king of Spain and all the overseas Spanish territories. Yes. But one of the things which, in particular, with that was 1549. That that was when Charles V announced it, and that's in the um, books of the time. And that's what caused the rift between Charles V and Ferdinand, because he, poor old Ferdinand, had absolutely no idea that that was going to come along and whack him in the face. So do we but, see any evidence of that in this painting? No, 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 no. That's what's in the report because that's, I had to go digging for that. And that was where I found it in the documents. So an art historian, so, yeah, you're so looking at an image and then you're analyzing the image and also what's underneath it to see if there's any interesting things there. Looking at documents, putting it together, and then you draft a report. Yeah. And there's a, I've got a full report on this, which is, you know, anyone can download it because it's free. Okay, it's, great. Uh, yeah, I did that as a pro bono for the owner um, so that I could hand, hang on to the, um, you know, to the report and it didn't get buried. Right. So overall, what was the purpose of portraiture and altarpieces and so on in the early modern period? Because today people just take pictures willy nilly. Oh, we were living in the most image uh, saturated society ever. And so basically, can, I, can we go to Catherine of Aragon? It's sure. lovely. This is a miniature of Catherine of Aragon in the Buclucus collection mm -hmm. uh, by one of the Horan Boots who came to Henry VIII's court in the early 1520s. And uh, it, lots of purposes. One, it records who they are. Two, it's a, it's a private gift. It's something very small and intimate in this particular instance. But she's also got a pet monkey. And very, very much a case 
of in the 15 mid 1520s henry's eyes were straying and anne boleyn was on the scene um and she was reputed to have been absolutely terrified of monkeys now monkeys were one of those things which the court had or courts lots of courts there's a reference to a, a merchant called Robert Buckman who supplied Henry V in the early part of the 15th century with monkeys, salamanders and a parrot. So, so what's your special about the monkey? What? What's so special about the monkey? Well, it could be from the Spanish New World, which is, this is a white-faced Panamanian capuchin, which this appears to be, but it's also got a belt round its waist and it's uh, secured by a chain and in the bestries you'll find that they're symbols of lust mm -hmm. so there seems to be another message going on here that you no know, maybe it's because Catherine is saying yes I know my husband is a lusty fellow and he's a monkey to go off of that but he's chained to me by the um, vows of marriage so as an art historian, what different skills would you need to analyze this type of painting versus the one that we saw before? You would need to know um, about the med symbolism about of the medieval in the bestiaries. You'd need to be able to go out and you need to look at uh, what was happening, the history of the time. You think of Catherine, you know, she came from, uh, the, from, the, from Spain. So... Um, it's not surprising that there'd be a gift to her from the new Spanish territories. Her daughter marries the King of Spain in the end. Um, Philip that we were just talking about. Philip that we were just talking about. So we have got this very close thing. It's a case of making those connections, knowing the history, knowing that there is uh, opening up trade, there's new, new, new worlds being opened, and you are now looking and really thinking about or you should be thinking about how is Europe responding? How is it affecting us? You know, because let's face it, follow the money is everything, yes. isn't it? <laughs> you know, okay, Henry had these spats with Francis I of France and they used to like to go to war together, but actually it's trade which is the glue. And that's why they were looking to go to the new world and Christopher Columbus sailed there. And that's why we have so many things which come back, like these um, capuchins. Mm -hmm. And it would have been novel because, you know, pre previously monkeys came from Africa. And, you and know, so the Barbary apes. Aside from the monkey. So let's say we didn't know that this is Catherine of Aragon. Mm -hmm. What are some things that an art historian would know that would indicate the status of this person just by looking at the image? Well, she has got folded back sleeves where, which are lined with ermine. And you look at that, she's also wearing extremely expensive clothes. Black um, is one of the uh, fabrics which is only allowed to be worn by people of wealth because it was an incredibly expensive dye. She's also, if you just look at her clothes, they are expensive. Whether or not you'd know whether it was Catherine, it would be something that she had in her hand. So she would be showing it to you. So it's not something that would be stuck on a wall because let's face it, it is so small, you can hold it literally in the palm of your hand. It's a private, intimate piece of work. So 
when you look at a pu public portrait, um, there's an awful lot of unknown sitters. And there was one recently which was thought to be an, a copy of a, a previous painting of Catherine of Aragon. And then they realized when they did the dendrochronology, it was actually the original painting. Oh, wow. it, yeah, it's slightly different uh, to this. I mean, her face is far more um, alive. In this, she looks fairly, if you like, determined and slightly, I'd say, grim. But, you know, what was the purpose of it? Was it to um, show that she had um, status because of the way she dressed and because she had this exotic pet? Or did it have another, uh, you know, did it have another reason? Did, and who commissioned it? We don't know. You know, despite everybody, because it's a very well-known uh, portrait, plowing through accounts, plowing through various court records, nobody knows or has found to date any evidence to say who commissioned it and why. And she so would have been lots turning, of still, not still lots of unknowns. And she would have been turning a forty in fifteen twenty-five as well, I think. Yeah. So. So that chain of marriage, you know, it doesn't matter what he thinks he can do. He can't because look, here he is, you know, mm -hmm. that is, that is something he can't get out of. So it has a political marriage message. Right. So you also have to have an awareness of not just reading the documents, not just knowing other science, uh, knowing scientists who can help you analyze the materials, but also you have to know the politics. And it looks like in this instance, you also have to have an awareness of what types of animals you're looking at as silly as that oh yeah yeah <laughs> I mean I've I've written an essay which is called monkey business at the royal courts of Europe okay which um there's another there's other stuff with monkeys in it and one of them um a wonderful photographer said no well it might be a ring-tailed lemur but I think actually it's not and uh again this is collaboration between different disciplines Oh, I see you have the two favorite portraits miniatures. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I got more for you, Heather. <laughs> I got more for you because I was fascinated by the portrait that you turned up from the Rosenberg. Yes. And then, of course, that was Moyle who helped us put two and two together with the, uh, yeah. the portrait of the unknown woman. Well, I have to say that the Rosenberg, I did a lot of work on the provenance for them. and. <laughs> That was an amazing piece of investigative work that you did. Thank you. And to me, there is absolutely no doubt that portrait in the Royal Collection is Anna. And what's more, if you compare the two, the yes. one in the Louvre and the Rosenbach, they're both vellum mounted on canvas. Mm -hmm. They are still the same woman. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what I'm hoping, and I'm hoping that the, the museum can get some funding, I'm hoping that the Rosenbach is a Holbein. That would be amazing, wouldn't it, to yeah. find a Holbein? I know that they had thought that, and then they had thought there was a couple different artists. I had mentioned um, Debrin. Debrin in my in my book, but also, mm. I'm not an art historian, though, right? So I really don't know. Yeah. So we have to rely on people like you um, to tell us more about portraits and and who the artists might be. And I mean, for example, here this comes back to knowing what materials are, right? So you see, ah. um, if I may, it looks like you're seeing a comparison or a common theme between what types of materials that Holbein would use 
for making well the extraordinary thing is mm -hmm. why did he paint the one that's in the louvre on vellum because it's not his normal that's not his normal it's normally oil on panel has to have been because it's easily transported he could roll it up the same with um the other one apart from the fact it needs cleaning another expensive process mm -hmm. um but you know i don't know it's down to the museum and it's it will be an exciting thing to find out whether it is or it isn't i do hope it is for their sake yes absolutely well thank you so much for talking to us today what uh what advice would you have for an amateur or serious person interested in the pursuit of art history oh <laughs> read the literature <laughs> okay right have a good knowledge of the history get to grips with all the techniques the artists and their work but most of all have a curious and open mind and don't be afraid to ask questions and to collaborate and one of i think that's something i've heard you say before use the evidence of your eyes oh you know people talk about uh particularly with portraiture oh what does it say if you're using uh facial recognition software best piece of software is the ones between your ears <laughs> <laughs> well thank but, you uh, oh, yeah. okay. yeah no i was gonna say if anybody wants to know a bit more about me fabulous there Great. you have um that's that's me <laughs> and we'll try and pop it in our comments too right um, yeah, if you can and tell people to get in contact with me, it's, um, you know, I will endeavor to uh, respond to any emails, uh, FaceTime. So thank you so much for providing your, your website. What are some other ways that people can contact you? Email, uh, which is on the website. Uh, if they want, they can phone me if they're in England um, <laughs> or have Skype or whatever um yeah or or just email it's um uh i do give courses i've given you know i've taught both medieval history medieval art history early modern history i do study days and all of those sort of things as well and, and you're technically you're yeah, an independent I, scholar yes yeah i've given papers at international conferences as well fabulous so, you know it's uh so yeah, I would I would advise anyone to take up art history and history because it gives you so many transferable skills. I mean, it's it's not just looking at pretty pictures. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope to have you back sometime. Well, it's been great. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.